it's a real miracle that we've all found ourselves in this place, and it's particularly a miracle for me to find myself sitting here. A miracle or a disaster we'll know in about an hour's time, but uh, I want to begin with a piece of advice. Always follow the Sangha schedule. I uh, made a little mistake the other day. I thought, uh, oh, I'll come a little bit late to the walking meditation. <clears throat> so I was doing walking meditation around the linden tree in Upper Hamlet at the time that the Sangha was walking down the, the meditation path. And at that time, the sister's car came into uh, the Upper Hamlet and the sisters came out and said, Table five, will you give a Dharma talk? Can everybody hear me okay? I have a, a feeling there's an issue with the sound. Okay, so uh, before we continue, can we work on the sound a little? Okay. Breathing in, I know that this is an in-breath. There's a lot of echo up here. Breathing out, I know that this is an out-breath. When you hear me well, can you raise your hand? Breathing in, I feel peaceful. Breathing out, I feel relaxed. Okay, about three quarters of the hall can't hear what's being said. So could the sound team please adjust the, the volume? Can we change microphones? We'll try that one. this one is this better okay much better so I was uh, avoiding the Sangha schedule which is something that I really advise you not to do the Sangha schedule is a, a great protection and so when the sisters came to ask me to give a talk today I said let me contemplate it because on the one hand uh, I, I'm living in Deer Park Monastery where again and again People say, oh, we love to hear the sisters. Why are the brothers always giving talks? The old brothers always push themselves up there and don't give the sisters a chance. So for me, I try to encourage the sisters because really, I think in our day and age, we need some more feminine dharma. There's been enough, uh, enough coming out of uh, so many of, uh, uh, yes, exactly, so many of us over the years. We have a lot to say, but uh, the sisters bring so many wonderful um, aspects to the teachings that we can't. So I really felt like I wanted to encourage the, the sisters. And then um, as I was walking around, I remembered what uh, uh, a great teacher shared with me one time. She said, it's very rare that we have the opportunity to do something of service, however small it might be. So when we are given the opportunity by the community to be of service, whether that's cleaning the toilets, whether it's cooking, or whether, in my case, shooting my mouth off, then we should always say yes, because the chance may not come again. So for me, um, then I responded uh, to the sisters by saying yes, I will do my best to be of service. Although um, what I say may or may not be of benefit, um, I've chosen to be here and to, to sit in this place to offer something from my heart today for, for everybody. 
I had an idea of what I wanted to share, and then this morning I got up and the ancestors were tapping me on the shoulder and they said, no, 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 get out of the way. So uh, if, uh, if uh, what's being shared today is appropriate, then I thank the ancestors. If it's not appropriate, then leave it where it is. I recently had the opportunity to travel to Ireland to offer some retreats and uh, some days of mindfulness and a couple of public talks together with a delegation. And when I arrived at the airport, we went through the immigration. And um, uh, as we were going through the immigration, the immigration officer asked me, is this your first visit to Ireland? I said, yes, it's the first time I've ever been here. And he said, uh, so what are you doing here? And I said, well, we're here to do retreats. And he said, what are you going to, to see? I said, I don't really know. What would you recommend? And he said, oh, Dublin is filled with pockets of goodness. And I thought to myself, that's a real teaching right there. That's exactly the heart of the Buddha's teaching, if we get down to the core of everything. That each one of us, yes, even you, even me, we have pockets of goodness. This was the insight that the Buddha had when he woke up. That in each one of us, there's a space that's open, that's free, that's available, that's bright. It's a pocket of goodness, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. So in Buddhism, we begin from a very different perspective than the perspective that we've been raised with in the West, where we are seen as somehow um, damaged goods, or uh, bad, or sinful. We begin with the recognition and the acknowledgement of our innate goodness. And for me, this pockets of goodness is a really important aspect for us to approach the practice correctly. If we approach our practice as if we are a project, something to be fixed, or that we need to get rid of this thing or that thing in order to get something else, then our life of practice is going to be a struggle. We're never quite going to get there. But if we approach our spiritual life using the invitation of the Buddha to recognize our innate goodness and to create the conditions for our innate goodness, that natural quality of our mind to shine forth, then our practice becomes a delight. And in fact, that's what the Buddha invited us to do, to experience our practice as a delight. One of the factors of awakening is in fact delight, pasada in the Pali language. It means being infused with a, a sensation of delight. Our practice is to be beautiful and enjoyable in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. Is your practice infused with delight? Is it a delight to sit here right now? Is it a delight to breathe in, to breathe out? Is it a delight to line up behind 200 people to serve your food at lunchtime? Why not? It's up to you. I have been enjoying so much the red poppies. Has anyone else been enjoying them? Yeah. Uh, 
in Southern California, we don't really have um, the spring. We have uh, two seasons, hot and wet, and hot and dry. So um, we're coming to the end of the hot and wet season. We don't really have um, a lot of things. We don't have grass, uh, which is one thing that I've been enjoying so much. And we definitely don't have the red poppies. We do have some yellow ones, but they're few and far between. And I've been enjoying so much seeing the red poppies coming out in the wheat fields and around in the grass. I was uh, traveling down here this morning, and on the way, I decided to pick a, a red poppy. And uh, one reason I decided to pick one is that each time I've seen the red poppies, I'm reminded of a, a tradition that we have in Australia. That is that uh, every year we have a day we call Poppy Day. And we all wear, we don't really have these uh, red poppies, we make them out of um, uh, crepe paper. And everybody wears a, a poppy to remember those who have suffered, uh, or those who have died for our country, or for, uh, for us. And everybody wears a, a poppy next to their heart. And I think it's a beautiful tradition, but at the same time, I also uh, feel it relates a lot to our practice of mindfulness. Because mindfulness means to remember. Remember doesn't just mean to um, think about things, but to bring all the different parts of our being together, our body, our speech, and our mind. To remember. In English, a member is, uh, is sometimes our arm, our legs, uh, these kind of things. So to bring all of our arms and our legs, um, our body, our speech, and our mind together into one place, to be united. To not be separate from the object of our attention, whether that's our breath, whether it's the food in front of us, whether it's the person that's speaking to us. To really choose to be there, undivided, A, a royal person in Buddhism is not somebody who's a king or a queen by birth, but rather somebody who's been able to unite the three different aspects of their being together. Then we're called noble. We're, call, we're called a queen or a king because we're completely united. We're completely ourselves. Uh, when I picked this flower, I was also um, contemplating the fact that over the life of his ministry, the Buddha gave so many Dharma talks, so many. And I often uh, visualize to myself the community gathering and uh, the Buddha giving a teaching. And one day the community gathered and everybody was sitting around a little bit, I imagine, like we were sitting this morning waiting for the Dharma talk to begin. And then the Buddha did something strange. He held up a flower. And then he put it down. And in my mind, I see everybody going. And so the Buddha held the flower. And then one person in the crowd began to smile. Mahakashapa. And the Buddha said, Mahakashapa is understood. That was basically the end of that Dharma talk. It was over. So, bit of a relief for me, isn't it? Because I can end whenever I want, and you know, that's it. He's understood. <laughs> so it's kind of strange. The Buddha held up a flower, 
I remember in 2004, Kay and the community had come to Deer Park for the winter retreat. It was the only time that our whole community was together in one place for the winter retreat after the founding of our U.S. monasteries. So the whole um, whole sangha was there. And I was having tea together with Tay, and he looked at me and he said, you know, Brother Fabai, in Mahayana Buddhism, if we're really aware, there's nothing that's not a teaching. There's nothing that's not the Dhamma. And so taking this example of the flower, in every moment of our life, in the spirit of engaged Buddhism, using our life as our practice, in every moment of our life, there's a flower being held up. There's an invitation of the Buddha. There's an invitation of our teacher. There's an invitation of our heart. That flower might be a person. It might be an uncomfortable situation. It might be a chocolate bar. How do we respond? How do we respond to the flower that's being held up in front of us in that moment? It's the very simple, ordinary, everyday things. It's not the lightning from the sky. But the real um, teaching of Plum Village is that our very life, this thing right here, whatever that thing is, is our opportunity to open our heart, is our opportunity to wake up. with the exception of a collection of discourses called the Udana, which is the, uh, translated as the inspired utterances, and one or two other um, discourses were given because of a question. Somebody came to the Buddha and asked a question. So when I was asked to give a talk today, I thought, I'll do an experiment. And I went around and I asked people, what would you like me to talk about on Thursday? And I had some very interesting responses. One person said, God, I don't know. Uh, another person said, talk about whatever you want, that'll be fine. Somebody said, say, say something about mindfulness. <laughs> Somebody said, talk about me and tell everybody how awesome I am. <laughs> you can uh, figure out who that is later. It wasn't me. And then uh, another person said, just talk about a sutra, it'll be okay. And I thought, how interesting. I was giving an opportunity for, um, for the friends that I approached to ask the question of their heart, to re request a teaching. The question I was actually asking was, what is the Dharma you need to hear, or that you'd like to hear? And... For many of us, there was the, the kind of thought that, mm, okay, whatever will be fine, or, you know, it doesn't really, really matter. And it wasn't that I didn't have any inspiration for today, but I wanted to see what our friends were practicing with. 
what we're actually working with in our spiritual life. It's very easy for us to float along, kind of three or four inches um, above uh, our experience, the earth of our experience. But what is the intentionality that we're bringing to this moment? In the year 2000, even for something simple as guided meditation, our teacher came uh, to our sitting meditation and said we should never do a sitting meditation without knowing why we're sitting and what exercise we're doing. And I remember Tay would uh, get the microphone and he would say, we're going to do this exercise. And this exercise is going to focus on this, 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 and this. Um, so I'd like everybody to, um, to approach the meditation in this way. The same with walking meditation. The same with eating meditation. Each moment is a new moment. Each moment is an opportunity to explore it just a little bit more deeply than we have before. Taking ownership of our own spiritual path is an important step towards spiritual maturity. Being willing to take the journey that we need to take. In the text, the Dhamma is described as being immediately useful and immediately effective. It's not described as something that is um, effective after three years or five years or 25 years of practice. Something that we struggle through now and we attain something later. But immediately useful and effective. In the Pond Village tradition, we call this arriving. And it really is the first of the Plum Village Dharma seals. I have arrived. I really think Buddhism is filled with a whole lot of lists. Um, there's five of something, there's 14 of something else, there's 348 of another thing. And it was that, like that because Buddhism was an oral tradition. Things were transmitted uh, by word of mouth for about five to six hundred years before things are written down. So it's kind of a mnemonic device. And um, we sometimes have forgotten the, the power of our language, the power of words. I think it was the year 2000, I was asked to assist with a retreat in Australia. And uh, I traveled from here to Paris. We tend to buy the cheapest tickets, so we don't fly direct. Um, I flew from here to Paris and had about six hours in the airport in Charles de Gaulle. And then we flew from Paris to Dubai. We had three hours in Dubai. And then we flew from Dubai to Saigon, to Ho Chi Minh City. And at that time, um, the airport was uh, not like it is now. Let me leave it at that. Um, and so we were in uh, Ho Chi Minh City airport, locked in a room for about 12 hours. Um, there was a, a nice cement floor and a delightful um, loudspeaker with Vietnamese opera playing the whole time. <laughs> and then we flew from Saigon to Sydney. It's about another 10-hour flight. And I'll never forget walking up the stairs of the house where I was staying. My bags felt very heavy. They were so heavy. They were heavy, but they felt particularly heavy walking up those stairs. And I got into the room where I was staying, and I put down the bags, and without any thought at all, I said, ah. My whole body felt wonderful. My mind felt at peace. 
later I had a little rest, and then later on um, I was doing sitting meditation, and I realized that that experience of, ah, putting down... <laughs> Am I echoing, or is there... <laughs> that experience of, ah, is exactly what we're speaking about when we speak about arriving. Generating that experience of ah with every step, with every breath, in this conversation. I don't need one more condition in order to be happy. Some of us here I know have studied the secret school of Buddhism, the um, Mantrayana. And in that school of Buddhism we talk about seed syllables, syllables of power. Um, mantras, dharanis, things like that. Words or syllables that contain an incredible amount of power. And if we think of the, the word arriving, what is the seed syllable of arriving? Ah, it comes down to that. That experience right there. So how do I need to walk in this moment in order to experience that How do I need to breathe in this moment in order to experience that ah? Okay? Tay has told us that we know we're practicing correctly if we immediately experience a relief. We immediately experience that coming back to our body, to our breath, to ourselves in this moment, however we find ourselves. The Dharma is immediately useful and effective. So if we're not experiencing this, ah, this sense of delight in our practice, we have some questions, some very important questions to ask ourselves and maybe each other. It's not a struggle. It's described as being beautiful in the beginning, in the middle, and in the end. So if the Buddha was in front of you today, or you met the Buddha outside on the road, What's the question that you would ask the Buddha? What's the question on your heart, the teaching that you would request the Buddha to offer to you? This, I think, is another very important thing to reflect on. Because uh, meeting the Buddha is something we have an opportunity to do in each moment not only 2,600 years ago, but in each moment. So what is the teaching that your heart needs to receive from the Buddha in this moment? When I was a young child, my parents used to say to me all the time, you need to wake up to yourself. Can anyone else's parents say that to them too? All right, yeah, all the Australians put up their hands. <laughs> you need to wake up to yourself. And um, I often, these days, think to myself, probably because I heard that so many times when I was growing up, that's why I was attracted to Buddhism. Because Buddhism actually means the way of waking up. So how appropriate is that? But then I also ask myself another question. What is it that I need to wake up to? For each one of us, that answer is different. What is it that I need to wake up to, that I'm turning away from, that 
I'm hiding behind. For some of us, it might be difficult to answer that question. And I'll give you a little tip. If you can't find the answer to that question within yourself, ask your Sangha. Your Sangha will tell you very quickly what, uh, <laughs> what they think you need to wake up to. <laughs> if you're not living in a community, feel invited to ask your family. They'll be very, very, uh, very kind and very quick to tell you what, <laughs> what they think you need to wake up to. What is it that I need to wake up to? All of the sutras begin with an interesting phrase, thus have I heard. And that phrase came about because um, in the council, Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant at the time, had a memory that was, we would call it a photographic memory, or an eidetic memory, was able to remember everything that the Buddha had said. So he basically recited the, the texts out and they, they copied them down. That's the short version of the story. Now for me, when I read a sutra, when I read a teaching of the Buddha, those words, thus have I heard, are an invitation for me. Because I have a funny kind of mind, and I think to myself, when I read that, that phrase, and then I read the next phrase, at one time there were 1,250 people gathered. I think to myself, where did all these people come from? How did they hear the Buddha? They didn't have microphones back then. Have any of you seen The Life of Brian? Mm -hmm. You remember that scene in The Life of Brian where Jesus is on the hill and he's giving the teaching and everybody's gathered around and people in the back are saying, speak up, speak up, we can't hear you. And then uh, Jesus is trying to talk a bit louder and he's saying, blessed are the peacemakers. And people are saying, what did he say? What did he say? And then somebody said, oh, he said, blessed are the cheesemakers and, you know, and things like that. So <laughs> I tell this not to be funny, although it kind of is, but it's a reality. When we, when we read a sutra, how often do we invite ourselves to be part of the audience? when the Buddha is giving that teaching, and we step into the situation. We can ask ourselves things like, um, if I was in that audience with the 1,250 or 5,000 or however many people um, were there, what would I have heard? Because what's in the sutras is what Ananda heard, and it's a word-for-word -word, uh, remembrance of what the Buddha said, but is that what was important to the, the potter that came? from the village? Is that what the, the woman who had the mango grove, Abba Pali, is that what was really um, important to her in that moment? And when I approach the sutras like that, it's like I'm asking the Buddha to speak to my situation and my heart. And each time I hear a teaching, it's different. So when we approach a teaching, what is it that I am hearing in this moment. What is it that strikes me in my heart? These are important ways to approach, approach the teachings. In the sutra opening verse, we recite these words um, every single time we, we do our chanting. The Dhamma is deep and lovely. We now have a chance to see it. What does it mean to see the Dhamma? 
How many of you have uh, stopped when we, we've recited the sutra opening verse and asked yourself, what does it mean to see the Dharma? What does it mean to me? Not what does it mean to pop high or somebody else, but what does it mean to me to see the Dharma? Have I had experiences of, of seeing the Dharma in my daily life? And if not, why not? We now have a chance to, to hear, which we've just spoken about. There are about 200 people in this hall, and I know when I've gone to Dharma discussion after a teaching of tape, sometimes I've asked myself, have you listened to the same talk I've listened to? It seems like everybody's received a very different teaching. So that will be something interesting to explore together this afternoon. What's the teaching that you're hearing, whether it's when we're reading a sutra or when, whether it's we're having a Dharma talk? And then the most difficult part for most of us, putting it into practice. I think we're very good at, uh, at coming to Dharma talks. We're quite good at studying as well. A lot of books, a lot of tapes, a lot of DVDs. But it's that last part, putting it into practice. And we don't need to put a whole lot of things into practice. We just need to choose one thing. One thing's enough to transform our life. That one thing might be as simple as choosing to follow our breath. Choosing to stop with the bell. Choosing a section of path to walk mindfully. Something simple, absolutely ordinary like that can be enough to transform our life. We can't very often in our life choose our circumstances. Many of us are so busy. We're in very difficult situations. But the choice we have, in fact, the only choice we have sometimes, is how to respond, how we can use this moment. We have to meet many wonderful people in, uh, in my life of practice. And uh, one of the wonderful people that I met was in Brazil. And she said, uh, I'm actually going to tell a, a story about her a little bit later. I think everybody remembers the stories more than they remember the lists. So I tend to like to tell stories. And I'll tell something about her in a, in a moment. She said something that really struck me. She said, each one of us has a very long and difficult journey to make. It's the journey of one foot from our head to our heart. And that's really correct. If we are a student of the um, Chinese language or the Vietnamese language, we know that the word for mind, the word for heart, the same word or the same character. We need a, a separate word, an additional word or character to indicate whether we're talking about our mind or our heart. In the West, we've grown up with this idea that 
mind and, and body are somehow separate, the Cartesian split. And so sometimes even words such as mindfulness can be problematic for us in the West because we, we begin to approach the practice as if it's an intellectual game. It, uh, there's that saying that um, uh, knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. <laughs> so <laughs> we, uh, we can sometimes or very often approach the practice of mindfulness through just the intellect. Don't get me wrong, intellect's a great thing. Everything begins with right understanding. However, the Indian philosophy of the time, I'm trying not to go there, but I'm a student of history, I'm, I'm going to go there. Uh, the Indian philosophy of the Buddha's time actually saw the seat of consciousness differently than we see it nowadays. In the Buddha's time, the seat of consciousness was not seen to be the brain as we would often see it well, up until about 10 or 15 years ago in the West. Um, the seat of consciousness was seen to be the heart. Now, whether or not we subscribe to that view these days, and it's a view, uh, it's very helpful, I think, for, for us because the heart is in the center of our being. So when the Buddha was speaking of mindfulness, the underlying, uh, underlying philosophical viewpoint of that time was that the seat of consciousness was the heart. Mindfulness, in that sense, is bringing our attention into the core of our being, into the core of our lived experience, out of the stories we tell ourselves into our bare experience. In the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutra, the, the Discourse on the Four Establishments of Mindfulness, there's a, a lovely phrase. The Buddha says, anyone who practices mindfulness has discovered for themselves the path of liberation. Mindfulness is as essential as salt is to the curry. I love that. I used to be a chef, so anything with the seasonings or spices, I love. Mindfulness is as essential as salt is to the curry. My grandfather used to eat salt sandwiches. Um, I think this, <laughs> this must be an Australian thing. So when I, uh, I read this, uh, this little uh, sentence from the commentary, I immediately thought of that. My grandfather sitting around eating salt sandwiches definitely brings uh, flavor to life. Mindfulness brings us to life. We come into contact with all the conditions that we have right here and right now, not somewhere in the future. And the other interesting aspect of this, um, this sentence is that we discover the path for ourselves. In the Pali language, the word path is maga. And maga doesn't mean like the auto route, like the big freeway going to Bordeaux. Maga is, the actual image in the Pali language is an old, if you read the Anguttara Nikaya, an old, overgrown hunter's path that's barely discernible through the forest. Okay? It's a very evocative image. 
it requires some discernment to be able to discover the path that's already under our feet. A few years ago, I was asked to come and share a few teachings at the Ohai Foundation, and I was so excited. The Ohai Foundation is where our teacher gave some of his first teachings in the United States in the 80s. He gave a retreat for artists and um, some other retreats there. It's a very, very beautiful center. It used to belong to um, Roshi Joan Halifax. And a friend of ours is now the, the site manager of the Ohai Foundation. So there's a large tree there that um, its branch span is probably about half of this meditation hall where Tay gave his teachings. It's called the, the teaching tree. It's like a big meditation hall uh, underneath the branches. And then there's um, many other different shrines and, and beautiful sites there in the Ohai Foundation. So we arrived in the evening. It was already getting dark and we were staying in a yurt. A yurt is like a tent. And um, when we got into the yurt, right next to the futon where I was staying was a map of the Ohai Foundation and it had join us on the gratitude walk and on the, the front of the cover of the brochure. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. And I opened up the, the pamphlet, come and join us on the gratitude walk. And there was a map of the foundation with all of the different shrines and sites that you could see in the Ohai Foundation. And they all looked so interesting to me. The deep kiva, the teaching tree, the forest of wisdom, all these things. And I thought, that would be lovely. Tomorrow morning, I'm going to get up when the sun rises and I'm going to do walking meditation around this um, gratitude walk. So I went to bed all very excited about the opportunity to uh, do walking meditation around these places. I got up early in the morning and had some sitting meditation and a cup of tea. And then I reached over and got the pamphlet and looked again at the map. because It was all new to me. I had no idea really about the layout of the land. And I saw three very inviting words with an arrow. It said, you are here. So I thought, great. That's perfect. So I, I came out, I had the map, and saw those three words, I'm here. And I stepped out with a lot of confidence and got lost immediately. No idea where I was. So I retraced my steps, and then I turned the map around, and I ended up going the other way and got lost again and had to retrace back to the yurt. At that time, I wasn't feeling what could be described as gratitude. I was feeling something else. <laughs> so I was feeling some frustration. I thought, how could it say you are here? But I'm not. And I was really, I was wrestling with it. I was struggling. I just didn't know what I was going to do. And then I, at one point, I, I said to myself, you know, Fohai, you know all of the, the sites that you're meant to see here. You know, you've seen them all on the map. You need to get rid of the idea that you're, you're standing there and just begin walking and see where you end up. So I let go of, uh, of uh, the, those three words in my head, you are here, and I began my journey. I began from where I was, which was not where the map says I was. <laughs> I think the Ohio Foundation has now changed their, uh, their map. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I shared with them this. <laughs> and uh, so anyway, I began the journey that uh, I needed to take from where I was. 
And over the course of about an hour or so, I visited all the, the sites, all of the places in the Ohad Foundation. They, they didn't seem to bear any relationship to the map that I was given, but they were all there. I knew what I needed to look for, but I needed to let go of the map which was somebody else's journey, starting from where somebody else started from, and to have confidence in my own steps, in my own ability to recognize the sights when I came to them. When I was able to do that, my real journey began. It's the same way for us in the life of the practice. Each one of us has come to the practice from a different place. We've all had very different experiences in our life. We come from many different cultures, we're different ages. And each one of us has approached the path of practice at a different point. Our journey is going to look and feel a little bit different to everybody else's journey. But the map is being laid out by the Buddha and by the awakened ones. We just need to have confidence in the steps that we're taking. And most of all, have confidence in taking the first step or the second step. And that's what the, uh, the Buddha said. One of the greatest things is to, greatest happinesses, is to know that we're on the right path. And we know that we're on the right path if we immediately experience the ah. Uh, that we were speaking of earlier. We're so sure that we understand everything already, especially if we've been a practitioner for 20 years. We know what it is to do walking meditation. We know what it is to do sitting meditation. Mindfulness of breathing, got it down. And yet the invitation for us is to develop a quality that we call beginner's mind. To always be willing to experience things in a new way. And I often share with my friends who come to the monastery that when we practice walking meditation, it is rediscovering what it means to walk. When we practice mindfulness of breathing, we're continually discovering and rediscovering our breath in a new way. When we practice eating meditation, each time a new time. A few years ago, a friend gave me a calligraphy which I keep on my wall. And I look at it whenever I'm starting to feel like I, I know everything already. It's four words. Each moment only once. If we're feeling bored with our practice, we're going through a dry spell, it can be an invitation to let go, to rediscover the simplicity, the depth of those absolutely ordinary things, the beginner's mind. One of the greatest teachings I ever received was from a, a wonderful teacher called Teyatan. Uh, he was our novice master when I was a young novice. He used to teach us the fine manners, which if you know uh, Teyatan, you'll find quite, uh, quite interesting. He did the fine manners class. And he said uh, to us all at one point, in the life of a practitioner, whether you're a monk or a nun or a lay person, 
the most important thing to do is to not cover things over with a whole lot of bells and incense. <laughs> Just allow things to be as they are, to start where we are, how we are, with what's right in front of us. ever experienced the world in the same way as you. No one has ever experienced the world in the same way as you. Each one of our minds works very differently. There's some commonality. But uh, our heredity, our genetics, our um, likes, our dislikes, our capacities, they're all very different. I remember when we had a number of sisters and brothers who arrived in Deer Park from Vietnam. We decided that we would take them out to see San Diego. And uh, we, we lived there for so long, but we don't really do a whole lot of tourist things, as you can imagine. So we've lived there for so long, we know where the airport is, the doctor's office is, these kind of things, but we didn't really understand why people came to that area to see all the sites and everything. So we said, okay, this is a great opportunity for us. So we all went down to San Diego to have a look at um, some of the, the sites around San Diego. And as we were sitting in the van, one of the young sisters, she looked at me and she got very close to my face. And I'm not used to that. I've been a monk for quite a while. And uh, she was very, very close to, to my face. And she was looking in my eyes very intently. And she said, you have green eyes. But, yeah, that's true. She said, I have brown eyes. That's also true. She said, do you see the world the same way I do? <laughs> and I thought, that's another great teaching, isn't it? The answer is no. I mean, neuroscientists will tell you that if we're all looking outside at the color green and, and things like that, then similar areas of our brain will light up, etc., etc. But your experience of the color green may be quite different than my experience of the color green. Okay? Your experience of this moment may be quite different from the experience of another person's moment a year or so ago, I gave a retreat that I called Just Sit. In Deer Park, we have some what we call themed weekends, where people come and um, we have different um, focused uh, weekends for people to go a little bit more deeply into the life of practice. So my weekend, self-explanatory, it was called Just Sit. It was, a, <laughs> it was a weekend about sitting meditation. So we were exploring um, uh, going more deeply in our sitting meditation practice. As one of the exercises on the second day of the retreat, for about 10 minutes, I asked everybody to pay attention to the sounds that were coming into our ear consciousness. So we all sat, and then at the end of that period, I asked everyone to share. And one person said, I was listening to the wind in the pine trees. 
Another person said there were wind chimes. Everybody else said, what wind chimes? And then somebody said, I couldn't focus on anything except the children that were screaming. And other people said, what children? So who's correct and who's not correct? We were all experiencing the same moment. And yet we were all experiencing only parts of that moment. Do you see the same world as in the same way I see the world? The answer is no. Makes us feel a lot more humble about ourselves, doesn't it? And also, at the same time as feeling humble, a lot more curious. And that is one of the fruits, or one of the miracles, as Tay calls them, of mindfulness. We begin to discover more of the moment, not just these small, limited things. Same conditions, different experience. It's said in the, the Buddhist text that if we put a cup of water in front of human beings, they'll see a cup of water. If we put the cup of water in front of hungry ghosts, they'll see pus and poison. If we put the cup of water in front of heavenly beings, they'll see it as nectar. Same experience, different ways of seeing. And the interesting part of this analogy for me is that the water is just the water, but it's our interpretation of um, what we see, what we hear, what we taste, that becomes that which we call reality. And it's not really reality at all. It's a small part of the totality of things, a small part of the reality. Mindfulness is developing the capacity to bring bare awareness, recognition to what's there. And when we do that, when we develop the capacity to be able to recognize, something else begins to manifest. That is that we begin to recognize the stories we tell ourselves, the interpretations we make. Most of our life is built on the stories we tell ourselves, sometimes stories we tell others, but the stories we tell ourselves. I think it's impossible, really impossible, to be a meditation practitioner and not to develop a sense of humor. If you really see the way that your mind works and the stories you tell yourself, it's hilarious. It's, it's just unbelievable. It's the comedy channel 24-7. Have you ever stood in line behind 50 or so people at the, the lunchtime, which we do in a, a little short time from now, and you're in the slow line and you start thinking to yourself, why am I in the slow line? I always get in the slow line. <laughs> Look at that line over there. Why didn't I get into that line? It's going so quickly, so quickly. Oh, woe is me. And then we, we get finally to the table and we, we're looking at there and we see, oh, that dish is the only good thing on the table. Why is she taking so much? It's gonna be, there's not going to be any left when I get there. Why? Why? And then we start to have all of these, these things coming up. Interpretation. And there's another person um, in the, the dining hall who's just walking along as if they're walking on lotus flowers. Who's right and who's wrong? In this hall here, 200 of us, Maybe some of us are thinking, oh, it's quite interesting. I'm getting a few interesting things out of the talk there. Others of us are thinking, gee, I wish you would hurry up and finish. I can't wait to go and have a cup of tea. 
right? There's nothing wrong with, with this. This is how we need to live our lives. Uh, it's, it's somewhat evolutionary, um, focusing in on things and interpreting things. But as a practitioner of meditation, we want to become cognizant of the fact that most of the time, the way that we view reality is simply an interpretation. Now, I'm not just saying this to fill up time. The Buddha gave a very powerful teaching about this. It's a sutra called Tubahiya, Bahiya of the bark cloth. Um, now, Bahiya was a trader who was actually originally from Burma. And he um, washed, was washed off a ship. And all his clothes and everything were, um, were torn off his body. And he washed up on the beach in India. I'm cutting a very long and involved story short here. So he washed up on the beach in India, and as he would, he said, well, it's happened, and I think I'm going to become a recluse. So <laughs> he decided that uh, he was going to become a practitioner. And he didn't have any clothes, so he looked around, and he saw a lot of trees with bark. So he made some robes for himself out of the bark of the tree, and he became known as Bahia of the Bark Cloth. So just a little bit of a backstory for you there. I, I find it interesting to know all these stories about who the Buddha was teaching. I think that's important to, to ask and to know. So Bahia was practi practicing for a while, and then he heard about the Buddha, and he came to, uh, to the Buddha, and he asked the Buddha, how do I transform my suffering? Which I think is probably the most important question anyone could ask. How do I transform my situation? Please help me. The Buddha gave a very short and very powerful teaching. He said, when you see something, just see it. When you hear something, just hear it. When you taste something, just taste it. And don't have any therefore. Where there is a therefore, there is suffering. If you're able to recognize when there's a therefore, the whole mass of your suffering will come to an end. Interpretations are natural, they're human, that's what we do. And sometimes an interpretation can be a helpful thing. But for most of us, the interpretations that we make of our bare experience are somewhat negative. So the invitation of the Buddha is to come back and to recognize what's in front of us. What's in front of us here is the experience. We think we know who we are. We think we know, particularly if we've been married or in a partnership for a long period of time, we think we know who the other person is. And we get trapped into this cycle, this cycle of uh, self-created suffering. You know, I was sharing earlier about the wonderful teacher who shared about the long journey we need to make from our head to our heart. And this was in Brazil. She uh, was a nun of the Tibetan tradition. And she was my translator during the time that I was in Brazil. I don't speak Portuguese. I can say thank you and where's the bathroom. And those are very important words, let me just say, to know in any language. Um, thank you and where, are the, where is the bathroom? <laughs> And that's about it. 
So she was translating all of the, uh, the Dharma talks and, and sharings. We had a day of mindfulness in the middle of Rio, in a, like a botanical gardens. So a lot of people walking around, a lot of dogs, a lot of children. So we had walking meditation in this beautiful park. And then we came down and we, we sat down outside on chairs and I was to give a talk. So I was sitting next to this um, sister giving the talk. Halfway through the talk, a smell started to assail my nostrils. It was the smell of dog poop. And I was giving the talk, but at the same time, my attention was divided. I confess, I wasn't completely united. It was a little bit divided. There was a, a little part of me that was thinking, where's that smell coming from? It's very unpleasant. And then as I was giving the talk, my attention started to be drawn over this way. I felt it was coming from this direction. And I felt like it must be coming from the sister. And so, so I was sitting there and more and more, I, all these stories started to go through my head like, oh no, like here I am trying to give a talk and this bad, bad smell is coming my way. It's such bad merit. Oh, like hasn't she had a wash? Well, all these things were going through, through my head like this. I really suffered about it. And um, I still had another 45 minutes or so to go for the talk. It was really strong and getting stronger. And every time I would look over at her, she would smile, which sort of compounded the situation a little bit. And um, life has a way. Anyway, so she was, she was just smiling and, and beautiful and, and very peaceful. And it was like a stick in my heart every single time. And then finally the talk ended, and then it was time for the day to, to, to go. And I got into the car, and we were heading back to the place, and I noticed the smell was following me. And then when I got back to the house where I was staying, it was still there, and I look on the bottom of my right-hand shoe, it was me the whole time. It was me. I must have trodden in something. And there was this sister, she must have been experiencing the same smell. It was very overpowering. I don't know what they feed the dogs down there, but I'm just saying. And she was sitting there smiling and peaceful the whole time. It was me all along. This is our situation. We laugh because we know it's true. This is what we do all the time. It's always someone else, somewhere else, some condition over there. And if that thing would go away, everything would be perfect. Right? We might even be in a little sangha and we think, oh, our sangha would be so great if that one person wasn't there. Yeah. <laughs> all wrong views, all wrong views. The Buddha's invitation for us is to turn our attention around and to look at the stories we tell ourselves, the interpretations that we make. The First Noble Truth tells us that we're never quite comfortable. Our human condition is we're never quite comfortable. And because we have this wound, this sticking point within us, this part that is just like an itch. We're always searching outside of ourselves for someone or something that might be a condition, uh, it might be another person, it might be a good cup of coffee that's going to take away that ache. The practitioner is invited to turn our attention around and to realize that we are enough we have enough, and to have confidence in our capacity to wake up. Like I said before, when the Buddha woke up 
And when he awakened, he didn't say, oh, cool, I'm the only one awakened in the world, nobody else can do this. What he said is, isn't this strange? Everyone has this capacity to wake up. We are enough. So what is it that you, and by you I mean you, what is it that you're searching for in this moment? What is it that you're looking for? What brought you to the practice of meditation? Whether that be two weeks ago, two years ago, 20 years ago. What brought you to the practice of meditation? Why are you a practitioner? And then also to ask ourselves that question again in this moment. Why am I a practitioner now? Just like when we're in relationship with another person, or we become a monastic, a ceremony might be an hour or an hour and a half long, and then you have the rest of your life. It's not a one-time choice. If we make only a one-time choice and then we just float along, we're not going to last very long or it's going to be dead. It's going to not really feel alive. When we're in relationship, we need to be continually renewing that relationship because we're always changing. The other person's always changing. We're always changing as a practitioner, and that is spiritual maturity. It's also a little bit scary. We're always changing. So what brought you to the practice, and what is it you're looking for? I find that asking ourselves that question, what is it I'm looking for, can be very revelatory. Often words come up such as happiness, peace, enlightenment, all of these very big words. Usually when we ask ourselves that question, what am I looking for? A big word will come up, happiness, peace, enlightenment. And we very rarely take the next step. What do you mean by that? If I ask you the question, what are you looking for? And you say, I'm looking for happiness. What do you mean by that? Your happiness might be quite different from my happiness. My brother and I, we grew up apart because our parents passed away when we were very young. And so a number of years ago, he came with his wife to visit me in Deer Park Monastery. And he said to the brothers, I really want to take Brother Fabhai out to Universal Studios. I sat there in the, the meeting when he was sharing that with the brothers, and I thought to myself, God, no. No. And I was hoping that the brothers would say, it's not appropriate for a monastic to go to Universal Studios. I was really, really hoping and hoping and hoping. And then the brothers said, you should go. Brother Hophai should go. And my heart sank. So it had been a long time since I had been to an amusement park. I mean, about 20 years. It's not somewhere that we normally go. And my brother and his wife took me to Universal Studios. And we were there. And I, it had been so long, I didn't know that they took photos of people at the end of rides. And things. I mean, when I, when I used to go to amusement parks, they did have electricity, I'm just saying. But they, they, they didn't have all of these things. So 
at the end of each of the rides, my brother has collected all of these photos. If ever you go to Australia and you meet my brother, ask to see them. Because you see everybody else on the ride with their hands in the air and smiling like this. And then you see me, mm, with my eyes screwed up and almost crying at the end of, uh, of every ride. Our happiness may not be the same as another person's experience or view of happiness. The same way for peace. The same way for any other word that came up in our consciousness. And yet when these words come up, we're so supremely confident that we would recognize happiness if it was there. Or that we would recognize liberation. Or that we would recognize peace. I find it very instructive to consider the situation of things like, would you recognize the Buddha if the Buddha walked in the room? Most of you here would say, sure, yeah, I'd recognize the Buddha. There is a, a delightful story that I love, and I think about it constantly. The Buddha had just become enlightened, um, and he was on arms round in a town nearby to the Bodhi tree. And as he was on arms round nearby, there was a potter in the village who saw him and said, this guy's kind of radiant. I'm going to go and, and talk to him. So he waited until the Buddha had finished his meal. And he said, so what's up with you? And the Buddha said, I'm a fully enlightened one. You know, I'm fully enlightened to, to everything. I understand everything. And it goes on in very, uh, very beautiful phrasing. And then this potter basically shrugs and says, all right, whatever, if you say so, I guess. <laughs> and then he walked away. He didn't believe it at all. He was face to face with the, the Buddha right then and there and didn't recognize who was in front of him. So for me, that's also very humbling. Are we able to recognize the conditions that are right there for us, here and now. If we're honest, I think we have to say no. We have to say it's not for sure that we'd be able to recognize happiness, liberation, peace, or the Buddha if we get stuck in the idea of what those things are. If we can identify what we most want in our life, that question, what am I looking for? And where do I think I'm going to find it? Then we know what we need to do and what we don't need to do. We know how to step out of our comfort zones and not to hide any longer. This is the beginning of what we call intentionality or volition, which is what we spoke about before. We all have our habit energies the places that we hide is what I like to call. My grandparents, it was always the 1970s in their house, which I loved. They had green wallpaper and mustard-colored toasters, and they had shag pile carpet. You know the very thick carpet? Now, over the course of many years, there were tracks that were made in the carpet because my grandparents would always walk this particular way to the chair or that particular way to the kitchen. So there were tracks in the carpet. Now, each one of us has our tracks in the carpet. We call them in Buddhism 
habit energies. Places that we go to constantly in order to try to feel comfortable. Little rituals in order to feel comfortable. Our practice of meditation shouldn't be a place where we hide. We need to be willing to examine the places where we feel slightly uncomfortable because they can be areas of growth. It was Einstein who said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over again while expecting a different result. It's going to be the same again and again. So these habit energies that we have, the little things we fall back on, they're there for a reason. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, what reason are they there for? What am I afraid of? What is the journey that I'm being called into? At one time, a student came to a teacher and said, please tell me what the heart of the practice is. And the teacher lifted up a cup and put it down. And the student looked at him like, okay, what was that all about? And so the teacher lifted up the cup again and put it down. And he said, the practice of meditation is learning how to pick up a cup, how to hold it, and how to put it down. The cup here stands for all things. Something simple like a cup, how do you interact with the absolutely ordinary, forgettable things of your daily life? It also stands for any moment, this situation, this person, this experience. How do we open to it? How do we hold it? And how do we put it down? Sometimes we see that we put it down very, very quickly. We throw it down. We don't want to be a part of it. Other times we hold on to it. We don't want to let it go. And then there are other times we learn how to put it down. Are we able to open, receive, and then release when it's time to release? If you breathe out and don't breathe in again, you've got a problem. If you breathe in and don't breathe out, you've got a problem as well. So how does that relate to our life of practice? We hold on because of our fear. I was sitting with Tay in 1998 in Switzerland. It was in the beginning of November and we were looking out the window at the lake and next to the lake was a tree that had all the branches were bare, with the exception of one branch, on which there were still a few leaves. And Tay said, you know, um, Brother Fabhai, that tree needs to let go of those leaves if it wants to have new growth in the spring. But that's a very scary thing for that tree to do. It's the last thing the tree wants to do. It's the same thing for us in the life of the practice. We've experienced a certain 
experience ourselves or our community in a particular way. This is how things have been for a period of time. And then we've come into a situation where things are changing. And the tree might be holding onto the leaves because that's all it knows. That's all the growth that it's, uh, it's had up until this point. And the most scary thing for that tree to do would be to let go of the leaves. But if it's able to do that in the springtime, the branches will grow, more leaves will grow, and it will be something beautiful to behold. So for us, my invitation at the end of this talk is to be willing to uh, look at the branches in our own heart, in our own life, in the life of our Sangha, and to not be afraid, but to have confidence that uh, by um, trusting in ourselves and in each other, the growth is already something beautiful to behold, something wonderful. Well, I hope it hasn't been too um, boring for you this morning. Um, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to sit here and share together with you. We're going to listen to a sound of the bell. And at the end of the sound of the bell, I wanted to respond to Tefop Ung's invitation of last Sunday, which was to have um, an Australian song offered to the Sangha. And I'm inspired particularly because we have a very special Australian cookie here, and that is the Anzac cookies, Anzac biscuits. So I'm going to, after we have the sound of the bell, we're going to invite all the Australians, monastic and lay friends, to come out here, Kaveh, I can see you. Um, everybody to, uh, to come out here and we're going to offer you a song. And then at the conclusion of the, the talk, after the announcements, please come and enjoy uh, some of the Australian cookies of childhood, uh, which I hear, they're very delicious.
Oh, there's quite a few. There's more than, than I expected. There's some that are missing. Okay, there's what I bring in. I see. Come on, sister. Did you all know home among the <laughs> There's a song that uh, we sing very often in Australia that's kind of appropriate to... Um, oh, wow. Okay, kind of appropriate to, um, to where we are. It's called Home Among the Gum Trees. I'm just going to say the words so that you can translate them into Vietnamese and French. The words are, I've been around the world a couple of times or maybe more. I've seen the sights. I've had delights on every foreign shore. But when my friends all ask me the place that I adore, I tell them right away. Give me a home among the gum trees with lots of plum trees, a sheep or two and a... <laughs> a clothesline out the back, veranda out the front, and an old rocking chair. Okay? So that's uh, something that we all grew up with in Australia. Are you ready? We might have to do the bomb, bomb, bomb because we don't have any accompaniment. Ready? One, two, three. I've been around the world a couple of times, or maybe more. Seen the signs of hard device on every farm show. So when my friends go, I'll see the place that I am. I tell them, oh, hey, oh, 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 after the announcements to come up and enjoy an Anzac Vicky. I think the Australians can uh, have some on the way up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Can we invite the uh, CTC to come and make some announcements? Uh, thank you, Brother Papai. It was a delight for all of us, I think, to, to hear your experience through your green eyes. And thank you, everybody, for coming to practice with us today. So the, the answer to one of the important questions that you need to know when you go traveling in another place, where is the bathroom? It's uh, over to opposite the meditation hall for both men and for women. Another important thing to know is where to get a cup of tea. So then you follow the path up to the main building and you can find the tea table there. And on the other side of the main building, we have the bookshop, which is open after we leave the hall and again after lunch. And when you hear the next sound of the activity bell, we'll gather between the dining hall and the bookshop for walking meditation. And after walking meditation, with the next sound of the activity bell, we'll line up for lunch. And today, it's not a formal lunch, so we can line up in any order, serve our food, and practice mindfully walking to meditate to back to the soul to eat lunch together. And, uh, the meditation hall team would greatly appreciate your help to take the mats and the cushions to the side after we leave. Uh, after I finish talking. Um, and there'll be more announcements after lunch. So thank you very much and please enjoy the Kiki's Australian Biscuits. <laughs>